Welcome to the Core of Discovery, a Lewis and Clark traveling companion, sponsored by Meyer Sign. I'm the host and producer, Michael Boss, inviting you to experience the journey of Lewis and Clark and the great American odyssey from the mouth of the Missouri to the mouth of the Columbia that ultimately defined America. The goal of our podcast series is to bring you the voices of people who not only know the history of the Corps of Discovery between 1804 and 1806, but live where that history took place. People for whom the past is always present. Thanks for listening. And now, on to the podcast episode. Well, followers of uh, the Corps of Discovery series, I'm I'm very excited this morning because I'm getting to do a phone interview with Judy Washburn. Judy, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes, you are. That's fine. All right. Uh, did I put the accent on the wrong syllable or anything? No, it's, actually, it's more Washbon. Washbon. All right. Washbon. Judy Washbon. And... How I came across Judy's name was uh, back in June when I was at the uh, Sacagawea uh, uh, Interpretive and and Cultural Center in Salmon, Idaho. I was looking at uh, business cards that were on the front desk and I saw Judy's and what intrigued me was um, the uh, title, which said Lewis and Clark slash Sacagawea historical presentations. And I thought, this is the kind of person I need to be interviewing. So, um, Judy, uh, you had sent me a little bit of information about you. And um, you've lived now for how long in, in Salmon, Idaho? I've been in Salmon for about... 15 years. For 15 years. And that is where you came across uh, the story of Sacagawea. Well, I would imagine, when when did you first encounter Sacagawea as, as a historical figure? I mean, for me, I think it would have to go back to, you know, probably grade school history class. Well, I would think so. I would think, um, I'm sure that it would have been elementary school. And then through that, just books, TV. But for me, it actually, I didn't really get my passion for Lewis and Clark until after my husband and I had moved to Idaho. And we live uh, right within uh, a few miles from her birthplace. And that's what really got me started. Well, you know, let's stop right there. Because honestly, I've spent... I lived in Idaho for 18 years. My wife and I lived in Boise. and We've been li- living in Western Washington now for about the last nine years. And I, I don't think it was really until I started digging more into the Lewis and Clark story that I realized Salmon, Idaho is the birthplace of Sacagawea. Is that? Do you think that's a surprise to a lot of people? How many people do you think know that? I mean, even folks who live in Salmon. Actually, I I think you're correct. Is not a lot of people uh, seem to know that. And then one of the things that I have found out is surprisingly is the local people 
I think it's because they grew up here and they're just not as interested or as into Lewis and Clark or the story of Sacagawea. Mm-hmm. And by the Maybe way... It's people. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and by the way, just for the record... You know, as far as the Sacagawea or Sacagawea goes, uh, my understanding very clearly from being in Salmon, Idaho, that if you're going to say it the way the Agadica did, uh, Sacagawea's people, you would say Sacagawea, as opposed to Sacagawea. Oh, I think that would be a wonderful thing to do. Let's do that. Okay, because that is actually the number one question that I'm always asked in my presentation. What's the proper pronunciation of her name? Sakagawea is the number one accepted pronunciation. And why is that? That's because that's how the captains pronounced her name. Now, the captains wrote her name a minimum of 20 times in the journals, and every single time it was uh, broken into syllables because they spelled phonetically, and it was Sakagawea with a hard G sound yeah. every single time. And, I mean, and Judy, Judy, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned that because I know when I read the journals and I read uh, – uh, <laughs> all the different spellings they have for her name. But when they break it down uh, um, by syllable like that, it's hard not to come to the conclusion uh, that you should pronounce it the way, you know, you're saying the captains did. Correct. Um, another pronunciation is Sakakawea, which is the second most accepted pronunciation. And if, if you're from North Dakota, you would say Sakakawea. Now, we know she was a Shoshone native, born here in Idaho, but she was living among the Hadassah people in North Dakota when she met the captains. And she told them that her name meant Bird Woman. Right. A lot of people know that, right? Bird Woman. And in the Hadassah language, Sakaka means bird, Wea means woman. Sakaka Wea. So, so, so Judy... Did her name have uh, an, an origin among her people, the Agadika, the, the, the Lemhi Shoshone, or is that name one that uh, she took from uh, living among the Hidatsa? Well, we don't really know. More than likely, it is a Hidatsa name, or, um, and it's probably closest to the actual truest pronunciation We'll never know. Sacagawea is absolutely the most common pronunciation. That's what I grew up with as well. Yes, same here. And it here. is also the Shoshone people's pronunciation. And the Shoshone say, if this was her name, this is how we choose to pronounce it. But it's interesting to note that Sacagawea is not a Shoshone name, nor a Shoshone word. Right. Right. And I've got one more little bit that's kind of an interesting theory on how the Sacagawea pronunciation became so popular. All right. And that's, be, that's because way back in 
1814, when the very first edited version of the journals were published, they were published by a man named Nicholas Biddle. Now, Biddle had full access to the captain's journal. He saw exactly how they were spelling her name, how they enunciated her name. But when the journals were published, it came out with the J spelling. Uh. And there's a theory out there that it was either Nicholas Biddle or his typesetter who couldn't read the captain's handwriting oh, and misspelled gee. it. And it came became published with the J spelling. Uh. And as those journals became more and more popular, so did this pronunciation. Oh, gee. Well, there you go. There's an insight. No kidding. Judy, I want to back up a little bit. So you said you and your husband came to uh, Salmon how many years ago? Uh, about 15 years ago. About 15 years ago. Okay, so uh, aside from, from discovering that Salmon, Idaho is, is the site of, of Sacagawea's birth, what was it that drew you to her story? Do you have the entire Gary Moulton series? Oh, yes. Oh, my. Um, okay, so you know I have to ask you this question. What was that first okay. book? What was that first book that you read? That first book, probably no surprise to anybody, was Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose. There we go. Thank you, Stephen Ambrose. You know, it's funny, Judy, because I, I recently uh, had an email conversation with a, uh, a Lewis and Clark um, uh, uh, historian uh, in uh, in Lewiston, Idaho, and okay. he 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 seemed a little dismissive <laughs> of Stephen Ambrose, it, and it it almost kind of struck me like you know when the indie band criticizes uh, the commercially successful band for selling out or something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I, Gary, uh, uh, well, Stephen Ambrose was, was definitely, uh, you know, an inspiration for me as well. Uh, how do you, in, in, tell me a little bit about what you do. You go out and you give uh, presentations um, uh, to a, a, a variety of audiences in not just Idaho, but I'm seeing you've also gotten out to, you know, Montana, Utah, and Texas, and you've done Zoom webinars. Tell me a little bit about that. Uh, well, that's correct. And the reason how, how that started is when I became so into Lewis and Clark history that my husband, I, I would say he finally got sick to death of listening to me constantly say, did you know this? Did you know that? that I was fortunate enough to be brought on by the Sacagawea Interpretive and Cultural Center to do their interpretive talks. 
I've been with the Sacagawea Center now for six years, and since then, I started um, I started spreading out my presentations. I've spoken all over Montana, all over Idaho, Utah, Central Texas, and again through um, nationally through Zoom webinars. It truly is my passion, oh. and I never get tired of it. So how do you go about how do you go about telling the story of Sacagawea? Well, I think when I I go about um, and I try to do I try to tell her story in a chronological era. Uh, sure, sure. Chronologically, yeah. Because just about everything that we know about Sacagawea is because of Lewis and Clark for right. what they wrote about her. There's only a very very tiny amount of information about her after the expedition. So when I start to talk about Sacagawea, I usually start with the pronunciation of her name, talk about her incredible popularity, and who we actually have to thank for her mass. Um, she's a true celebrity. Her, she's a superstar. And actually, that is not because of Lewis and Clark, but that's because of these suffragettes. Oh, for heaven's sake. Yes, and it was actually the suffragettes whom created um, this mass popularity. This is, of course, back at the turn of the 20th century. In the early 1900s, they're trying to get the vote for women, and they adopted Sacagawea as their poster child. They made her the symbol of independent womanhood, the true symbol of a woman's worth. After all, she was the ultimate working mother, and she was the first American to vote on American soil. Wow. So the suffragettes really, they were the ultimate PR people. They promoted her. They wrote stories about her. They actually commissioned artists to create statues and paintings and sculptures of her. So it's the suffragettes who we have to thank for her absolute mass popularity. Well, you know, Judy, I, I've got to say, if, 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 if you want a, a great example of leaning in, Sacagawea. <laughs> she leaned in like, she leaned in like nobody else in the, you know, and, and I think, you know, it's funny because um, you, you, you have to remind people, I think, that, look, this... This woman was actually a girl. I mean, she was what? She's, when, when she started out on this trip, she was, you know, barely 17. She was, yeah, she was about 16. Yeah, and, and so I think people, real, people recognize, okay, she was the only female, that's fine. Uh, oh, yeah, she had a baby. She was the only mother. But she was the youngest member of that expedition. There was nobody younger than her. Uh, That's G right. George Shannon was a son. George Shannon was well, yeah, other than her son. George Shannon was a few years older, you know. But um, so it's it's and and so I kind of think about the the um, oh, it was kind of the anecdote that that was popular with uh, it, it with in the era of feminism, shall we say, which was uh, Ginger Rogers did everything Fred Astaire did, but she did it backwards and in high heels. And I think I think the same way. Personally, I think the same way uh, about 
uh, Sacagawea uh, on that on that journey. That's that's right. So when I do talk about Sacagawea, I also talk about a lot of the myths around her, her myths, the mysteries, and her legend. There's um, a great deal of myths still surrounding her. What do you? Yeah, and that was one of my questions: is what are the the biggest myths and misperceptions that you encounter uh, in in relating uh, her history to people? Well, I think the number one myth is how she guided Lewis and Clark to the Pacific and back. In fact, I actually grew up being taught in school and believing how she was their guide. Um, many current documentaries still yes. portray her as yes. their young guide. Yes. So she led them to the Pacific. And this is actually a huge myth. She was hired as an interpretist. She was not a guide. In fact, 90% of the territory that they covered, she'd actually never been there. Yeah. She had never been to the ocean. She didn't know what an, where an ocean was it's doubtful that she would have a concept of what an ocean actually was she was not a guide she did however guide in just one singular instance and that was on the way home they split their parties to do separate explorations she's with the main party with clark he's exploring the yellowstone river in montana and she recognizes a gap in the mountains and she tells clark I recognize that gap in the mountains. Captain Clark said, great, let's go that way. Well, that gap is Bozeman Pass in Montana. And he wrote in his journal how she served as an excellent pilot. An excellent pilot. That's right. An excellent pilot. The The very words he used. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, the very words he used. I love that. Pilot. Yes. Uh, But that was the only time she truly served as a guide. Right, right. But uh, I think, you know, obviously her, her, her presence as an interpreter was, uh, was of profound importance when they were negotiating for uh, horses with uh, 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 the Lemhi Shoshone. That's right. And something that we don't think about is that often is the line of communication. Yes. Sacagawea, she did not speak any English. I'm sure by the time the expedition ended, she picked up a few words and phrases. I would imagine she was pretty, she was obviously intelligent. Right. But she, she didn't speak English. And her husband, the French trader, Toussaint Charbonneau, he didn't speak any English either. He only spoke French and Hadassah. And Sacagawea spoke Hadassah and Shoshone. Right, So right. when a real line of communication was needed... It went from English to French to Hadassah to Shoshone and back again. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm actually working on a little, uh, uh, just a, a little uh, article uh, called uh, "Dialing for Horses," and it kind of makes reference to the old party game of telephone. But imagine playing telephone where each person in the line, the telephone line, uh, speaks a different language. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty incredible. Um, I'm going to bring up a controversy. You know, we're talking about myths, myths and misperceptions. Uh, and, um, and it's one that, in fact, Stephen Ambrose um, uh, raises, which was um, at, at around the time uh, 
past uh, the Three Forks um, that the Corps of Discovery was uh, looking for uh, Indians because they needed access to horses, they knew that they were in the territory of uh, the Shoshone. That's who they were looking for. And yet, in those instances where separately uh, Clark or Lewis would take advance parties to search, they left Sacagawea. They, they left Sacagawea behind. I, that, right. it, it, how do you explain that? I can't explain it, but I have my own personal theory. I uh, please share. And, and that is because when Clark, you know, he took three separate trips to search for the Shoshone. He took a very small detachment, and same with Lewis. Lewis took a very small detachment with him as well. And my theory is because they didn't consider bringing her, not because she wouldn't have been helpful, which of course she would have been, but because it was probably, and this is my opinion, it would have been considered too dangerous of a mission. And she would have been much better and well protected by the entire party. Yeah. Instead of just... Yeah. men who were all splitting out in different directions. And that is, as again, that's just my personal opinion and my theory, is because it would have been considered too dangerous of a mission yeah. to take this young woman with a baby. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know what, which brings up the logistical issues of uh, a, a lot of the time... Um, Sacagawea and, you know, her infant son, Jean-Baptiste Pomp, were going at the same speed as the rest of the Corps because they were traveling in boats. But on land, you've got a whole other set of logistics because we know that Lewis uh, could cover a lot of ground really quickly uh, on foot. So, okay. I, um, here's, here's an interesting question. What sort of sense do you have, or, or are you able to get a sense of what the relationship was like between Sacagawea and uh, Charbonneau? Because, you know, Toussaint Charbonneau basically acquired her uh, from the Mandans. I mean, they say, you know, he married her, so I'm assuming there was some sort of, of, of ritual. Um, but... How, how do you? How did you come to, to to think about that relationship or see that relationship as you got into the uh, the history of uh, Sacagawea? Well, number one, I don't exactly see it as a love match. I'll say that right off the bat. Sure. I think that the big theory is that she was either sold to Charbonneau, or he may have won her any gambling debt. Sure. Uh, we don't really know. Charbonneau also. At that time, he was also married to another Shoshone woman named Otter Woman. And I will say, um, and when Charbonneau was hired by Lewis and Clark, he was told that he could take just one wife with him on the tour, on the trip. And he chose Sacagawea. Nobody knows why. Maybe because it was because she was pregnant at the time with her child. I know that during the trip, he didn't necessarily treat her that well. Um, at one point, 
Clark had to check her or check Charbonneau from smacking her. Um, um, and I don't believe that, um, I don't believe she was probably treated um, with great respect by Charbonneau. Of course, that's my theory, but that's kind of what I think. I know when they were among the Shoshone people, Lewis had to purchase a horse for her to ride to get over the bitter roots. He gave Charbonneau enough trade goods or money to purchase a horse for her. Right, right. That's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm drawn back to uh, this letter that Clark wrote to uh, Toussaint, uh, Toussaint Charbonneau on August 20, 1806. And there's, uh, in the letter, he makes the statement, your woman who accompanied you that long, dangerous, and fatiguing route to the Pacific Ocean and back deserved a greater reward for her attention and services than we had in our power to give her at the Mandan's. And of course, her husband got the uh, what was it, three hundred and sixty acres that the government had promised as you know part of the compensation package, and she certainly didn't receive anything. But then, women didn't own property back then either, much less women right. who were uh, who were uh, non-white. Um, what what do you think is what for you are 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 the most compelling things about? Um, about Sacagawea's life? Oh, I think that Sacagawea had a very, I think she had a hard life. Um, she had a very tough life. And unfortunately, the way that it was for women back then, and particularly Native American women, is they weren't treated uh, with the greatest amount of respect. In fact, Lewis had made a comment um, and I don't know if I should say this or not, because usually I don't, but he did say regarding the Shoshone that the women were perfect slaves to their men. Oh, yeah. No, I, I yes. <laughs> so I think they had a, I think she had a very tough and difficult life, but I think she actually, and this is my, again, my opinion, I think she probably um, enjoyed um, more freedom when she was along the trip. In fact, um, someone had written after the expedition, and I believe it was, um, I believe it was John Lutick. He was the um, yes. He was the clerk at the fort at Fort Manuel Lisa, and had written that she had become very accustomed um, to the whites and would wear um, clothing. Oh, that interesting. was modern clothing at wow. the time, or try to. Wow. Something that we we don't think about, and something maybe in romantic history we don't really want to picture that, but she did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, and and you know what? That's something I can easily imagine. I mean, if if you look at photographs of, uh, I mean, take your pick among the tribes. Um, following uh, first contact, uh, it's not long before you see the incorporate. Well, hey, when when Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery were heading down the Columbia, as they were getting closer to the mouth of the Columbia, and they were starting to see some of the Chinook that were coming up in the other direction, and they were wearing uh, uh, European coats and hats. That's right. 
That's right. So, you know, yeah. Sailor hats, jackets. Exactly. They, exactly. They started hearing uh, phrases such as damn Yankees and damn rascal. <laughs> damn rascal. That was, I, I, I love that. Yeah, it's great. Well, you, you, you talk about uh, uh, Fort Manuel. Um, so, in 1812, uh, Sacagawea gives birth to a daughter, and the daughter is named Lisette. Um, uh, yeah. And then how soon after does John Ludig, the clerk at the fort, uh, uh, he makes an entry in December 20 uh, about her having died of, quote unquote, a putrid fever. Right. So how, how, uh, how long after she how long after she had her daughter did she did she die? Okay. But that's still a theory. Nobody really knows for sure. Yeah. And you probably know that John Lutig scooped that little Lisette baby up and traveled all the way to St. Louis to turn her over to William Clark, who legally adopted both of her children at that time. Now, at what point did uh, Clark take custody of uh, Jean-Baptiste? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, yeah, that. yeah, yeah. You you can hear Pierre Crusat, you know, playing the fiddle and, and, and the baby jumping up and down. I love it. And he, uh, when he said he wanted to raise him, um, Sacagawea and Charbonneau had thought about it. And they said, yes, but we will wait till he's weaned. We'll wait till he's older. Yeah. And we will bring him to you. Okay. And it wasn't until... After the expedition had ended, that they showed up with little Jean Baptiste uh, for Clark to raise. Oh, that's and right. Of, that's right. That was in eighteen. That yeah, that was in eighteen oh nine when they made that trip to uh, St. Louis. That's right. And a lot of folks don't realize that Sacagawea and Charbonneau had actually settled in St. Louis, and they lived there off and on for almost three and a half years. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't until eighteen about eighteen eleven, Charbonneau finally said he was sick of big city life. He'd had a belly full of civilization, and he wants to leave. Yeah. And it was in eighteen eleven when they were traveling on a trade boat heading to Fort Manuel Lisa. Mm-hmm. And so, and oh, oh, go ahead. Charbonneau were on board, and she had become 
ill and sickly and longed once again to see a native home. Yeah. We know she was sick in 1811. Yeah. 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 Well, boy, I, I'll tell you, I could, I could, uh, I could go on for a, a, a lot longer here, Judy. This has been delightful, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to ask, oh, you know, a, a, a point that I wanted to make earlier, um, you know, you were talking about the contributions that uh, uh, Sacagawea had made as an interpreter. Uh, certainly that instance on the return trip where she was able to uh, act as a pilot for uh, for yeah. Captain Clark. But, you know, there's also another reference that occasionally is made or, or uh, I, I, at least once, I think, uh, in in the journals, about her presence among this group of um, uh, men, and it was a military expedition, and how her presence altered the uh, the environment, if you will, uh, when they encountered uh, other tribes. question. Yes. Your personal favorite Sacagawea story. Well, okay, I will tell you that. I've actually got two. One's really short, and that was when they were on the coast. When they were on the coast, Clark, the captains had received word that a dead whale had washed up on shore, um, and he was forming a party to go to the ocean. They wanted to they wanted to get some of the meat, some of the blubber, etc. He formed a small party. It would be about a several days' journey. Sacagawea wanted to go. She asked to go, and the captain said no. They said, too dangerous. You stay here. Safety of the, of the main party. Refused to let her go. Sacagawea absolutely put her foot down and said she had told the captains that she found it very difficult, that she had come, traveled all this distance, and is not going to be allowed to see this monstrous fish in this great water. So they thought about it and said, okay, you can come. 
Yeah. That's probably my favorite story. Yeah. No, I, I, that, that is a great one. Okay. And so you've got another one. My other one was basically when she proved, she showed the captains and the men what her true character was like. And, of course, that happened when the boat she was traveling in started to tip over. Now, this happened, they were in, um, of their of their two large pirogues, one was considered the most steady and stable, and that's where they kept their most precious possessions, their instruments, uh, scientific instruments, medicines, Indian trade goods, documents, and they also had six men who couldn't swim. They were on board this one boat, boat as was Sacagawea Charbonneau and the baby. Now, the captain's had a rule they could both never be away from the boats at the same time. One captain had to be with the men at the boats, while the other could be on shore exploring, messing around. And they would take turns. But for whatever reason, this one spring day, they broke their rule. They're on a high bluff overlooking the Missouri River, watching the boats come up river, when suddenly a huge squall of wind blows up, fills the sail on this one boat, starts to rock and tip the boat over. That's the steady boat. Captains are freaking out, trying to get the men's attention, firing their rifles. They couldn't be heard because they're too far away. The boat is filling up with water. It's capsizing. In fact, Captain Lewis had written in a rather indignant manner how the only thing that kept her from capsizing was the resistance of the sail against the water. Oh, gee. And how, she was, and how the boat was allowed to lie on her side for long moments at a time. So on the boat, it's absolute panic, total chaos. All the men on board are trying to bail water out. Sacagawea is leaning into the water with a baby on her back and calmly and quietly collecting all the small articles as they're starting to float away. Both captains had written about her in their journals. Both captains had written about her calm, quiet attitude in the face of great danger. Lewis actually took it a step farther, and Lewis wrote, I ascribe equal fortitude and resolution to the woman as to any man on board at the time of the accident. She would have been about 16 and a half years old with an infant on her back. And the one thing I did mention, her husband, who was between 45 and 50, was on the floor of the boat, frightened to death, begging for mercy. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was the incident where uh, George Gruyere drew a gun on him. Oh, it was Pierre, that's, it was Pierre Croissant, that's right, Pierre Croissant. So, what happened is her husband, Charbonneau, was actually steering the boat that day, he was at the rudder, and he became so frightened, he lets go of the rudder, falls to the floor of the boat, threw his arms in the air, and started begging for mercy. No one could get him to pick up the rudder, which is probably why the boat was allowed to lie on her side for moments at a time. Until Pierre Cruzat comes alongside, pulls his pistol on Charbonneau, 
and threatened to shoot him instantly if he didn't pick up the rudder yeah. and do his duty. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Favorite story. Uh, it is a good one. I'm so I'm going to close. I'm going to close with mine because before we started the recording, I was mentioning that I had a particularly favorite story about Sacagawea, and this is from uh, November 30, uh, 1805, and it finds the core discovery in uh, Young's Bay uh, at the mouth of the Columbia, and they are just beset by these horrendous storms off the Pacific. Uh, their clothes have been rotting away. Um, they have decided that they're going to make winter camp on the south side of the mouth of the Columbia, uh, which is, by the way, not what Sacagawea voted for. But nonetheless, uh, the you know the the majority prevailed, and uh, it's just it's just a terrible time. And uh, I'm going to quote from a book by uh, Rex Zeke. Uh, it's a book called In Full View. And uh, here's what he says. Um, Young Sacagawea pitied Clark. It was one thing to be soaking wet and cold all day and night, but hunger was an entirely different problem and one that she understood. Sacagawea knew that she had something that could relieve Captain Clark's suffering, so she unpacked a small portion of wheat bread that she had secretly carried for the past three months and gave it to him. And Clark notes in his journal, the squar gave me a piece of bread made of flour. The young mother had carried this rock-hard crust of bread across the Rocky Mountains and for hundreds of miles by canoe with the intention of giving it to her baby boy when he became old enough to chew food. Now instead, she offered it to Clark. And again, uh, Clark's journal, she had reserved for her child and carefully kept until this time, which has unfortunately got wet and a little sour. Clark could have refused it. He could have given it back to her for the baby, but he didn't. Instead, he immediately devoured every morsel and savored the taste of this unexpected treat, writing in his journal, This bread I ate with great satisfaction at being the only mouthful I had tasted for several months past. And I just found that to be such a touching story. That's right. Well... I, I, boy, I could go on much longer, Judy. We'll we'll have to get together in person at some point in my travels. I would love to meet you and talk more about Sacagawea, talk more about Lewis and Clark and the core discovery. Um, I am going to be doing a story about the Interpretive and Cultural Center, um, but uh, it's a wonderful, it's a it it's a jewel in Sam and Idaho's crown. That's for sure. And, uh, Sam and Idaho is just such a beautiful, beautiful place. I would encourage people to go visit. And I think that when you're there, particularly when you go to the Sacagawea interpretive and cultural center and you walk the grounds out there, you're going to see the place where Sacagawea grew up. How old was she, uh, Judy, when she was abducted? Probably about eight. No, when she was abducted, she was uh, about 11 or 12 years old. Okay, 11 or 12 years old. All right. In any event, it, it would have been such a, a, a beautiful place to grow up. And Judy, you're, you and your husband are very fortunate to, to, uh, to, to call it home now. Yes, we are. We love it here. Well, Judy, again, I, I thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been uh, fascinating and um I will say uh, to be continued, but in the meantime, uh, thanks so much for uh, 
being a part of our series. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this podcast episode of Core of Discovery, a Lewis and Clark traveling companion. And I hope you'll be back for future episodes. You can also follow our stories through our host website, MeyerSign.com. On Facebook, you'll find us at Travel Lewis Clark, and on YouTube at Core of Discovery. Our thanks to sponsor Meyer Sign for making this show possible. Proceed on.